Today's read, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, written by Anthony T. Browder. Part 2, Stolen Legacy, continued with Chapter 6, The Nile Valley Presence in Europe. If the parallels between the mythological history of Isis and Horus and the history of Mary and the Child be considered, it is difficult to see how Europeans could possibly avoid perceiving in the teaching of Christianity reflections of the best and most spiritual doctrines of the Egyptian religion, Sir E. A. Wallace Budge, The Gods of Egypt. The discoveries of Egyptian antiquities in the 18th and 19th centuries fueled the passions of Europeans in every nation of the continent. The collections amassed in the Louvre and British museums created a surge of nationalistic lust for the precious and exotic artifacts of the Nile Valley. Egypt was systematically raped and pillaged for more than a century before academicians developed an archaeological mythology for excavations. By then, countless monuments had been destroyed. Thousands of papyri and mummies were burned, and some of the finest statuary in the world had been spirited away in private collections. This second wave of the European invasion into Egypt was similar in many respects to the invasions by the Persians, Greeks, and Romans more than 2,000 years earlier. In both instances, the mystique of ancient Egypt held the European mind in a trance and created within them an insatiable desire to recreate the spirit of the Nile Valley within their homelands. One of the elements most often duplicated in Europe was that of the African concept of God. The Nichiru of the Nile Valley evolved to become the gods of the Greeks and Romans. The names of the African holy royal family of Asar, Aset, and Heru were changed by the Greeks to Osiris, Isis, and Horus. They were later referred to as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in early Christendom. The worship of Isis and Horus as the Black Madonna and Child was widespread throughout southern Europe until the convening of the Nicene Council in 332 A.C.E. After that meeting, the images of the African-born Aset and Heru became European in appearance and their names were changed to Mary and Jesus. Despite this action, many churches in Europe continued to secretly worship the Black Madonna and Child. There are shrines of the Black Madonna in Italy, Spain, and Russia, and currently, whenever Pope John Paul II visits the shrine of Czeszowa in his native Poland, he often prays at the feet of the Black Madonna. It has also been suggested by Diop that Paris, France was also the site of a temple that was formerly dedicated to Isis. He suggests that the term Parisi could mean Temple of Isis because there was a city of that name in Kemet, Diop states. 
the worship of Isis was evidently quite widespread in France, especially in the Parisian basin. Temples of Isis in Western parlance were everywhere, but it would be more exact to say houses of Isis, for in Egyptian these so-called temples were called Pur, the exact meaning of which in ancient Egyptian, as in present-day Wolof, is the enclosure surrounding the house. The name Paris could have resulted from the juxtaposition of Per Isis, a word that designated certain cities in Egypt, as Hubak observes, quoting Raspero. According, the root of the name of France's capital could be derived basically from Wolof. This would indicate to what extent the situation has been reversed. Throughout his numerous writings, Diop referenced the many linguistic similarities between Medunetra and Wolof, the language spoken in his native land of Senegal. One of the finest examples of Gothic architecture is the famed Cathedral of Notre Dame, which stands on the small island of the Ile de la Cité on the Seine River in the center of Paris. This cathedral is dedicated to Notre Dame, the French expression for Our Lady, the Virgin Mary. The construction of this building occurred between 1163 and 1250 A.C.E., but it was built on the site of two ancient temples, the earliest of which was originally called Per Isis and was dedicated to Isis. E. A. Wallace Budge, former keeper of Egyptian and Assyrian antiquities at the British Museum, described the similarities between Isis and Mary in volume two of his book, The Gods of the Egyptians. Budge declared, it is clear that the early Christians bestowed some of Isis's attributes upon the Virgin Mary. There is little doubt that in her character of the loving and protecting mother, she appealed strongly to the imagination of all the Eastern peoples among whom her cult came, and that the pictures and sculptures wherein she is represented in the act of suckling her child, Horus, form the foundation for the Christian figures and paintings of the Madonna and child. Several of the incidents of the wanderings of the Virgin with the child in Egypt, as recorded in the Apocryphal, Gospels reflect scenes in the life of Isis as described in the texts found on the Metternich style and many of the attributes of Isis, the godmother, the mother of Horus, are identical with those of Mary, the mother of Christ. The writers of the apocryphal Gospels intended to pay additional honor to Mary the Virgin by ascribing to her the attributes which up to the time of the advent of Christi ah. <sighs> the writers of the apocryphal gospels intended to pay additional honor to Mary the Virgin by ascribing to her the attributes which up to the time of the advent of Christianity they had regarded as the peculiar property of Isis. There are a host of other images from Kemet which have also made their way into religious iconography. The paintings and carvings of the winged Necher Ma'at served as the prototype 
for the Christian concept of the angel. Ma'at represented the principles of truth, justice, righteousness, and reciprocity, and her symbol of the scale of justice was used to weigh the souls on their day of judgment. In some religious paintings of the Middle Ages, images of the angel of God can be seen holding the scale of Ma'at. One of the more prominent images from the Nile Valley to appear throughout Europe was that which represented the resurrection of the African nature, Asar. This powerful symbol was called a Tekken in Kemet, but it was later renamed by the Greeks, who called it an obelisk. Currently, obelisks can be found in Paris, London, Istanbul, Egel, and numerous other cities throughout Europe. The very first obelisk erected in Rome was in 10 BCE to commemorate Augustus's conquest of Egypt. A second obelisk was removed from Alexandria and erected in Rome in the spring of 357 ACE after the establishment of Christianity. There are now a total of 13 obelisks in Rome. The most famous obelisk in Italy stands in the center of St. Peter's Square at the Vatican, the Piazza di San Pietro. Very few people realize that on Easter Sunday, as the Pope stands on his balcony overlooking the multitudes and delivers his sermon praising the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, he faces a 6,000-year-old symbol that represents the resurrection of the Nile Valley Netcher, Asar. The development of European secret societies one of the most enduring aspects of the Nile Valley civilization was the proliferation of its scientific and philosophical thought, which became known outside of Kemet as the quote-unquote mystery schools of the hermetic sciences. From the earliest of times, the masses of Europeans were poor and ignorant, while only the most fortunate men, noblemen, Lords, scribes, and various religious leaders were provided with an education. Of this group, an even smaller number knew how to adequately read or write. The dogma of Christianity was readily available for the masses of people, while the educated elite studied the ancient teachings, which were also called Gnosis, or true knowledge. The newly emerging schools of Hermetic Neoplatonic and Gnostic thought in Europe were loosely based on the Nile Valley principles of education which were designed to awaken within an individual knowledge of self. This knowledge led to an awareness of the powers of God which exist within man as expressed in the myths of Asar and Heru. This philosophy was in direct conflict with Christianity which taught that man was conceived in sin, and that salvation could only be gained through Jesus the Christ, the Pope, or other accepted intermediaries. One example of the clash between these opposing ideologies can be found by studying the symbolism incorporated in the story of St. Patrick and the Druids of Ireland. Peter Tompkins, in his wonderful book, 
Secrets of the Great Pyramid provided a clue to this mystery in a brief overview of the Druids. Druid in Old Irish meant he who knows. Julius Caesar, our earliest source on the subject, considered the Druids highly educated and well-organized. In De Bello Gallico, he commented, it is especially the object of the Druids to inculcate this, that souls do not perish, but after death pass into other bodies, and they consider that by this belief, more than anything else, men may be led to cast away the fear of death and to become courageous. They discussed many points concerning the heavenly bodies and their motion, the extent of the universe and the world, and the nature of things, the influence and ability of the immortal gods, and they instruct the youth in these things. The Druids were also known to dress in a style similar to the priestly kings of Kemet. Their heads were often adorned with a uraeus, which was the symbol of the cobra that was worn on the crown of the pharaoh. Because of this symbolic imagery, the Druids were often referred to by outsiders as the snake people. Their presence and ideology were viewed as a, as a direct threat to the development of Christianity in Ireland. In 432 ACE, Pope Celestine I sent a former British slave named Patrick into the region to convert the population. In the name of Christianity, Patrick's army slew thousands of Irishmen, and he is said to have founded more than 300 churches and baptized more than 120,000 persons. Patrick also introduced the Roman alphabet and Latin literature into Ireland. He was rewarded by the Vatican with sainthood, and today millions of people throughout the world celebrate St. Patrick's Day on his feast day, March 17th. To the average person who dresses in green, wears shamrocks, and marches in parades, this day commemorates the myth of the man who drove the snakes out of Ireland. What most people fail to realize is that the snakes St. Patrick drove into the sea were not the snakes that crawled on the ground, but the snake people who walked on two feet and were once known as Druids. In 1517, the Reformation, a religious and political movement in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church, began spreading throughout Europe. Participants in the movement were called Protestants, which is derived from the Latin word Protestants, which means one who protests. This term first came into use in 1529 at a special assembly in Spire, Germany. Many Protestants were also interested in ancient Egypt and the Hermetic sciences. In the 17th century, an organization called the Rosicrucians emerged in Germany, France, and England. They advocated a quote-unquote true religion, which was reserved for the enlightened elite. This organization was similar in many respects to many newly emerging organizations that attempted to pattern themselves after the mystery schools of the Nile Valley. One of the greatest European scholars to emerge in the 17th century was the English scientist and mathematician 
Sir Isaac Newton. Newton is credited with inventing integral and differential calculus, introducing the laws of gravity, and developing profound theories on light and color. He was identified by the Rosicrucians as one of their most learned members. Newton fervently believed that Egypt was the fountain of knowledge in the ancient world, as referenced in his writings, Principia Mathematica. The Egyptians were the earliest observers of the heavens, for from them it was that the Greeks, a people more addicted to the study of philology than of nature, derived their first as well as their soundest notions of philosophy. And in the Vestal ceremonies, we can recognize the spirit of the Egyptians who concealed mysteries that were above the capacity on the common herd under the veil of religious rites and hieroglyphic symbols. Medieval, the Christian church was the major civilizing force during medieval Europe, for it was a source of leadership, social development, and education. The era of cathedral building occurred between 1000 and 1500, and these structures served as the center around which the common people lived their lives. The walls of the cathedrals were lined with paintings and stained glass windows which portrayed scenes from the Bible and the lives of numerous saints. These buildings served as a visual talking book and provided within their artwork a source of knowledge for the many illiterate worshipers who could neither read nor write. Cathedral design and architecture was patterned after the ancient temples of the Nile Valley, which were always oriented to celestial bodies. In every instance, the cathedral was shaped like a cross. The entrance faced west. The altar is in the east in a semicircular area known as the apse. Behind it is an aisle called an ambulatory, which leads to several chapels. In the front of each cathedral, were two steeples which represented the twin obelisks that often stood in front of the Egyptian temples of old. The great rose window of the cathedral is a design which represents the solar disk of the Netra Amin. The British astronomer Sir Norman J. Lockyer, author of Dawn of Astronomy, elaborated on the similarities between Egyptian temple orientation and European cathedrals. He stated emphatically that all our churches are more or less oriented, which is a remnant of old sun worship. Any church that is properly built today will have its axis pointing to the rising sun on the saint's day, i.e. a church dedicated to St. John ought not to be parallel to a church dedicated to St. Peter. It is true that there are sometimes local conditions which prevent this, but if the architect knows his business properly, he is unhappy unless he can carry out this old world tradition. But it may be suggested that in our churches, the door is always to the west and the altar is always to the east. This is perfectly true, but it is a modern practice. Certainly in the early centuries, the churches were all oriented to the sun so that the light fell on the altar through the eastern doors at sunrise. 
Lockyer, also described the architectural peculiarities of St. Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican. So exactly due east-west was the basilica that, on the vernal equinox, the great doors of the porch of the quadriporticus were thrown open at sunrise, and also the eastern doors of the church itself, and as the sun rose, its rays passed through the inner doors, and penetrating straight through the nave, illuminated the high altar. The men responsible for constructing the cathedrals in medieval Europe were members of secret societies who were called operative masons. These men had a particular affinity to ancient Egypt, which they viewed as the birthplace of masonry. Most cathedral building came to an end after the Reformation and the wars of religion, but elements of masonry survived in Britain among members of the ruling class who were referred to as speculative masons, and their order was renamed Freemasonry. There also exists a number of similarities between the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. They both made special use of measurements and proportions of buildings. This knowledge, derived from Nile Valley teachings, was designed to represent the universe and man's particular relationship to it and symbolize God, who was commonly referred to as the Master Architect. Both organizations believed in the divine destiny of enlightened men to serve as world leaders and to create a more righteous life on earth. Chapter 7 The Nile Valley Presence in America The Nile Valley, Masonry, and the Founding Fathers the history of the United States stands as a glorious example of what man can achieve when freed of the burden of religious persecution and allowed to pursue true enlightenment. The United States was the first nation in the modern world established on the principles of reason and understanding as opposed to warfare. The true spirit of America is rooted in the fundamental principle called democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, etc. For this reason alone, America has served as the model form of government for Europe and the rest of the world. We must, of course, understand that the democratic concepts espoused by America's founding fathers, applied only to free white men of means and not Africans, Native Americans, women, and the poor. A careful study of the events which led to the creation of the United States of America reveals an attempt by white males of European ancestry to recreate in the New World the spiritual essence that once existed in the Nile Valley. America's founding fathers were 18th century deists who were profoundly influenced by the philosophical ideologies of the secret societies in France, Germany, and England. 
The United States of America is the only nation that has printed on its currency the words, In God We Trust. This is not a reference to the God of the Bible. As deists, the Founding Fathers did not believe in the fall of man. They believed in the existence of God, but they also felt that the Creator exercised no control over the lives of people after the creation of the world. The Founding Fathers believed that man could know God through reason and the refinement of the intellect. This was the quintessential spirit of democracy. They believed that every mind was capable of enlightenment. It was therefore necessary, it was therefore unnecessary, to have an authorized figure of the church to dictate revelation. A mind that was cleansed of secondary and merely temporal concerns beholds with the radiance of a cleansed mirror a reflection of the rational mind of God. This was the reason for the Founding Fathers' insistence on the separation between church and state. Throughout the years, historians have glorified the American Revolution and its struggle for independence, but an issue which must be closely examined is how an army of ill-equipped and improperly trained Minutemen defeated the mightiest military force in the world. There is no question that European secret societies and Freemasonry helped to determine the outcome of the war. They influenced many individuals and events relating to the American Revolution and the development of the United States, as the following list indicates. The Boston Tea Party was a raid by American colonists on three British ships docked in Boston Harbor on December 16, 1773. Approximately 40 to 50 men disguised as Indians threw 340 chests of tea into the harbor to protest British policies on imported tea. This was one of a series of events which led to the Revolutionary War. The plans for the Boston Tea Party were discussed by Masons at a meeting of the Green Dragon Tavern, which also doubled as their Masonic Lodge. Daniel Webster once described this site as the headquarters of the Revolution. The Revolutionary War against England was declared on April 19, 1775, and George Washington was named Commander-in-Chief of the Army on June 15. George Washington had been initiated in a Masonic Lodge in Fredericksburg, Virginia on November 4, 1752. There were 33 generals, assorted officers, and numerous enlisted men who were members of the Masonic Order and who fought under the command of Washington during the war. Masonic lodges were also established on the military bases so that the craft could be practiced on a continual basis. According to Marquise de Lafayette, General Washington never willingly gave independent command to officers who were not Freemasons. Nearly all the members of his official family, as well as most other officers who shared his inmost confidence, were brethren of the mystic tie. Lafayette was a French Freemason who came to the United States in 1777 and brought with him weapons 
mercenaries and funds to help finance the war against the British. He was given the position of Major General in the Army, and he was a member of Washington's staff. Lafayette fought in major battles of the Revolutionary War and helped to negotiate the Treaty of Paris, which was signed in 1783, formally ending the war with Britain. He was later rewarded by Congress with $200,000 and given land in Louisiana and Florida. Lafayette Park, which is located across Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House, was also named in his honor. Lafayette was not the only Frenchman to be honored by the newly formed government of the United States. In 1799, the town of Louisville, Kentucky was named in honor of King Louis XVI in gratitude for France's assistance during the American Revolutionary War. The Declaration of Independence, which was adopted by the Second Continental Congress on July 4, 1776, led to the establishment of the United States of America. The Declaration was written by Thomas Jefferson and was a sweeping indictment of King George, the British Parliament, and its people. This document embodied the true democratic spirit of America and the principles for which the Founding Fathers fought. Fifty of the 56 signers of the Declaration were active members in various Masonic organizations. It has been suggested by William A. Brown, former curator and overseer of the Library and Archives of the George Washington Masonic Memorial in Alexandria, Virginia, that the Declaration of Independence was a Masonic, was a Masonic document. Brown stated that the sentence structure and structure of the Declaration is unmistakable proof of its Masonic nature. While not saying that the text was written in a quote-unquote secret code or embodied a quote-unquote hidden agenda, Brown did comment, We're just accustomed to using certain words and phrases which tell us that this was definitely written by a Mason. Anyone could see a pattern here. That's what I mean by Masonic document. The Constitution of the United States was signed on September 17, 1787, and 13 of the 40 signers of the document were Freemasons. Throughout the early development of the United States, four of her first five presidents have been Freemasons, and of the 41 men who have been elected president, 16 have been documented as members of the craft and four others were questionable. It can be said that a number of factors contributed to the colonists' defeat of the British. The rebels had the home field advantage and fought with guerrilla warfare tactics. There was also the great distance created by the Atlantic Ocean which separated America from Britain. And while King George was fighting the colonists, he was also engaged in separate conflicts with the Spanish and the Germans. All of these factors helped to determine the final outcome of the war. Many Masons also strongly believed that, is, that it was the Masonic rituals and initiations which helped to create the mental and emotional bond among the troops, which aided them during their darkest days of the war. The 
Valley Origins of the Great Seal of the United States. We have already discussed in previous chapters the role that the Nile Valley played in the developments of religious thought and secret societies in Europe, and we have also briefly surveyed the role of Masonry in the American Revolutionary War and the establishment of the United States. Let us now investigate the relationships between the Nile Valley and the Great Seal of the United States. The first Great Seals appeared in the 7th century Europe in 7th century Europe and were used exclusively by royalty. The term Great Seal emerged in the 13th century. It was used to make a distinction between the privy or lesser seals which were used by royalty for personal or business affairs. Over the years, great seals have come to represent the heart and soul of a nation. The United States, following in the tradition of its British ancestors, decided to create a great seal for her new nation and thus incorporated into its design elements of masonry, numerology, and Egyptian symbolism. A committee was formed to create a great seal on July 4, 1776. Its members consisted of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. A Frenchman named Pierre du Simitre was hired as a consultant, and he is credited with introducing the shield E Pluribus Unum. The Roman numerals MDCCLXXVI, 1776, and the I within the triangle. The final design submitted by the committee was rejected, and a second committee was formed in January of 1777. Francis Hopkinson served as the design consultant for this group, and he proposed the pyramid, an olive branch, and a radiant constellation of 13 stars. No favorable action was taken on these designs and a third committee was formed five years later. The third and final committee met on May 4, 1782 and Secretary of Congress Charles Thompson appointed William Barton as Chief Artistic Consultant. These two men borrowed and modified the ideas from the two previous committees and finalized the designs that ultimately graced the obverse and reverse of the official great seal. Slight modifications were made on the front or obverse of the great seal in 1885 when a new die was cut and the emblem was has remained unchanged since. The reverse of the great seal was not used publicly until 1934 when Henry Wallace, Secretary of Agriculture and former Vice President, submitted a proposal recommending that both sides of the Great Seal be used on a coin. While researching his suggestion, Wallace saw a similarity between the Latin phrase Nouveau Ordo Seclorum, New Order of Ages, and the New Deal, New Deal of the Ages, which was then, in 1933, being implemented by President Roosevelt. Roosevelt was so impressed with the correlation that he decided to use both sides of the Great Seal on the dollar bill 
instead of a coin. Wallace and Roosevelt were both Masons and shared a fond appreciation and understanding of the symbolic significance of the pyramid and the eye above it on the Great Seal's reverse. The official dies for the Great Seal are on permanent exhibition in the Department of State Building in Washington, D.C. The conventional description of the seal is as follows. The obverse bears the design used on official documents. The American Eagle with an escutcheon or shield on its breast symbolizes self-reliance. The 13 vertical stripes on the escutcheon came from the flag of 1777. The chief above the stripes in 1782 symbolized Congress, but since 1789 it has represented all branches of the United States government. The eagle holds an olive branch of 13 leaves and 13 olives in its right talon and 13 arrows in its left. It faces the olive branch to symbolize a desire for peace, but it is always prepared for war. In its beak is a scroll inscribed E Pluribus Unum, which translates as one nation out of many states. Above the eagle's head is the 13-star new constellation of the 1777 flag, enclosed in a glory or golden radiance, breaking through a cloud. The reverse of the seal contains a pyramid of 13 courses of stone, which represent the union and it has the date of 1776 written in Roman numerals on its base. Above the pyramid is the Eye of Providence enclosed in a pyramid, the motto, Anuit Coeptis, meaning he, God, has favored our undertaking, is written above the pyramid. The words at the bottom, Nouveau Ordo Seclorum, means, means the new order of the ages which began in the year 1776. Manly P. Hall, noted expert on Masonic lore, has described the reverse of the great, st- the great seal as the signature of an exalted body of men who helped establish the United States for a peculiar and particular purpose known only to the initiated few. Hall referred to the unfinished pyramid as a trestle board setting forth symbolically the task to the accomplishment of which the United States government was dedicated from the day of its inception. The pyramid and the eye above it, which represents the eye of Heru, the son of God, clearly establishes an Egyptian link with the reverse of the great seal. The obverse of this seal is strikingly similar to the Nile Valley image of Heru, and the differences represent the cultural nuances which were unique to the United States. Above the eagle's head are 13 stars which are arranged in the form of the Majen David, which is also called the Seal of Solomon. This is an ancient symbol that predates Judaism and represents two pyramids. The two pyramids symbolize the two pillars of Solomon, which play a significant role in ritualistic masonry. They have been described by one Masonic historian, Dr. John A. Weiss, 
in his 1880 publication, The Obelisk and Freemasonry, as an imitation of two obelisks at the entrance of Egyptian temples, as are the two towers on Gothic cathedrals and two steeples on churches. Even the repetition of the number 13 on the Great Seal was of significant symbolic importance to the Founding Fathers. Joseph Campbell, author of The Power of Myths, commented on its meaning in an interview with Bill Moyers. Campbell stated, The number 13 is the number of transformation and rebirth. At the Last Supper there were twelve apostles and one Christ, who was going to die and be reborn. Thirteen is the number of going out of the field of the bounds of twelve into the transcendent. These men were very conscious of the number thirteen as the number of resurrection and rebirth and new life and they played it up all the way through. The Nile Valley Influence on American Architecture There are a number of cities and monuments in the United States that were influenced by Nile Valley architecture and symbolism. Probably one of the most easily recognizable symbols can be found in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Of all of the monuments that could have been built to honor George Washington, one has to wonder why an obelisk was selected. It is not a structure indigenous to the United States, nor does it represent the cultures of France, Germany, Britain, or any other European nation. The obelisk's relationship to Egypt, Egypt's relationship to masonry, and masonry's relationship to George Washington and the Founding Fathers provides the only logical reason for the selection of the obelisk as a fitting memorial to George Washington. The Washington Monument was completed on December 6, 1888. On that day, a Masonic ceremony was performed to formally dedicate the memorial to George Washington. This structure is 555 feet and 5 8 inches and is the tallest obelisk in the world. Current architectural restrictions in the District of Columbia forbid the construction of any building taller than 13 stories. This unique height regulation has been in effect, has been in effect since 1894 when objection was made to the height of the newly completed Cairo Apartments and Hotel in Northwest Washington. One will also find an obelisk on Bunker Hill in Charleston, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. This memorial was built in honor of the soldiers who died fighting in the American Revolutionary War. The literature describing this monument falsely attributes the origin of the obelisk to the Greeks. The obelisk, or Tekken, has been used for hundreds of years in countries throughout the world as a grave marker for the dead, particularly veterans who happen to have also been Masons. This structure is one of the oldest symbols to represent the process of spiritual resurrection, and it was originally associated with the comedic nature Asar, 
who became known to the Western world as the Egyptian god Osiris. The city of Washington, D.C. also has a number of architectural and symbolic elements which can be directly linked with a Nile Valley counterpart. For example, the Washington Meridian, 16th Street, is the north-south axis of the city and is the site of its prime meridian. 200 years ago, there was a stone marker on 16th Street, which marked the meridian for the city. It was at an elevation called Meridian Hill. This specific site was determined by Benjamin Banneker, surveyor for the federal city, who plotted the exact position of the sun at high noon on the spring equinox in March of 1791. Meridian lines are used to measure longitude, which is the distance east or west of a line passing through the prime meridian, which is located on zero degrees longitude. In 1791, the prime meridian was oriented to the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, and all meridians of longitude were numbered east or west of this site. In 1884, an international conference of astronomers met in Washington, D.C. and determined that the line passing through Great Britain's Greenwich Observatory would become the new prime meridian of the Earth. This location is currently used to measure all time zones in the world. The Potomac, Potomac, Potomac River, Potomac River, Potomac, hmm, Potomac, Potomac, the Potomac River. In Kemet, the east and west banks of the Nile River held a specific symbolic meaning. The sun rose on the east bank, which symbolized life, and the sun set on the west bank, which symbolized death. In the ancient city of Waset, Wosay, now called Luxor and Karnak, temples, palaces and homes, activities pertaining to life were built on the eastern bank of the river. The tombs for the royalty of Kemet, the valley of the kings, queens, and nobles were built on the western bank of the Nile, which represented the afterlife. One will find a similar relationship in the original design for Washington, D.C., where the Potomac River divided the city into an eastern and western bank. Eventually, the land west of the Potomac was not incorporated into the district and was given back to the state of Virginia, but the symbolism of Kemet is still present in the current design. Directly behind the Lincoln Memorial is a bridge, which spans the Potomac River and leads up the Avenue of Heroes to the gates of Arlington Cemetery on the West Bank. This cemetery is where the presidents and nobles of this country are buried. It is the American equivalent of the Valley of the Kings. The Mall. West Central Washington has a long, narrow park-like area, the location of some of the city's leading attractions. It is called the Mall, shaped like a cross. This area has four monuments located at each of its primary points. The Capitol is located in the east, the Lincoln Memorial in the west, the Jefferson Memorial is found in the south, and the White House in the north. The Washington Monument stands in the approximate center 
of the horizontal and vertical axis of the cross and was to be aligned to the prime meridian on 16th Street. There is an interesting similarity between the mirrored image of the Washington Monument in the reflecting pool and reflection of the Tekken of Queen Hatshepsut and Tutmos I in the sacred lake of the Temple of Karnak. Upon seeing the resemblance between such structures, one can't help but marvel at the influence of artisans of the Nile Valley who have Upon seeing the resemblance between such structures, one can't help but marvel at the influence artisans of the Nile Valley have had on artists and architects over the years. The Lincoln Memorial, which is at the opposite end of the reflecting pool, provides us with an excellent example of such a comparison. The Lincoln Memorial is a temple-like monument surrounded by 36 Doric columns. There is a column for each State of the Union at the time of Lincoln's death. Inside the memorial is a statue of Lincoln seated in a chair, which is strikingly similar to images of Ramesses II seated at his temple in Abu Simbel. What is most fascinating about the Lincoln Memorial is an alternate design, which was given brief consideration prior to the construction of the existing monument. In 1912, the famous architect John Russell Pope proposed a design to memorialize Lincoln that was to have been built to the proportions of the Great Pyramid of Khufu at Giza. Pope's design was viewed as lacking in originality and a more traditional Greek-styled memorial was built in 1922. Washington, D.C. is not the only American city with an affinity to Nile Valley architecture and symbolism. In the early 19th century, Andrew Jackson founded the city of Memphis, Tennessee along the banks of the Mississippi River because it reminded him of the Nile River Jackson, who was a Mason and the seventh president of the United States, named the city in honor of the Nile, Val Nile Valley city of Memphis, the first capital of Kemet. Memphis, Tennessee currently has a sister city relationship with Memphis, Egypt. The newest landmark in Memphis, Tennessee is a $62 million, 32-story glass-covered pyramid, which is five-sixths the size of the Great Pyramid at Giza. It also has a large statue of Ramesses II at the front entrance. Plans are currently underway to build an elaborate Egyptian theme park featuring holographic pharaohs and a boat ride through a spiritual netherworld. There have been suggestions that the body of Elvis Presley be enshrined inside this pyramid as a fitting memorial to the king. Approximately 150 miles north of Memphis, where the Mississippi River caresses the southern Gulf coastal plain of the state of Illinois, there is an area called Little Egypt. The local inhabitants named this region because they saw a similarity with the land between the Mississippi and Ohio rivers and the Nile Delta in Egypt. At the southernmost tip of Illinois is the city of Cairo, and 20 miles to the north in the county of Alexander is the city of Thebes. Also located within this region is the city of Karnak and two comedic named bodies of water, Lake Egypt 
and Lake Ramesses. Developers in Las Vegas, Nevada have recently announced plans for the construction of a new hotel slash casino complex called the Luxor. It will consist of a 30-story pyramid-shaped building with more than 2,500 guest rooms. The $300 million project will feature a museum containing replicas of early Egyptian artifacts and a full-scale replica of King Tut's tomb. The interior of the hotel will have a waterway called the River Nile and boats will be used to transport guests from the registration desk to the elevator lobbies. There are numerous examples of Nile Valley architecture and symbolism throughout the United States. This topic will be explored in greater detail in the second volume of our Exploding the Myth series. The Nile Valley Presence in Mesoamerica The question of an African presence in early American civilization was first raised in 1858 when a gigantic head with African features was discovered in the village of Tres Apotes, Mexico. A brief description of this head appeared in the Bulletin of the Mexican Society of Geography and Statistics in 1869. It was authored by Jose Megler and it read, in 1862, I was in the region of San Andres Tuxtla, a town in the state of Veracruz in Mexico. During my excursions, I learned that a colossal head had been unearthed a few years before. On my arrival at the hacienda, I asked the owner of the property where the head was discovered to take me to look at it. We went, and I was struck with surprise as a work of art. It is without exaggeration a magnificent sculpture. What astonished me was the Ethiopic type represented. I reflected that there had undoubtedly been Negroes in this country and that this had been in the first epoch of the world. Contemporary scholars reacted to Melger's discovery with a great skepticism and a serious investigation was not undertaken until many years later. Matthew Sterling, a researcher with financial backing from the, from the Smithsonian Institution and the National Geographic Society, led an archaeological team to Tres Apotes in 1939 and excavated the gigantic head that Melger had described 77 years earlier. The head was carved from a single block of basalt, and its measurements were astounding. It was described as being eight feet high, 18 feet in circumference, and it weighed more than 10 tons. Sterling's description of the head echoed the sentiments of Megler. He stated, it presented an awe-inspiring spectacle. Despite its great size, the workmanship is delicate and sure. Its proportions, perfect unique in character among Aboriginal American sculptures it is remarkable for its realistic treatment. The features are bold and amazingly Negroid in character. After achieving tremendous success in Tres Zapatos, Sterling later set out for La Venta in the Mexican state of Tabasco where scholars had earlier reported finding gigantic heads. 
La Venta turned out to be a veritable gold mine. Sterling found four additional heads, all African in appearance, and similar in detail to the head found in Tres Zapotes. In addition to facial similarities, all of the heads wore helmets. Some even wore earplugs, and others had cornrows. Historians have identified these statues as belonging to the Olmec civilization. The word Olmec is derived from the Aztec root Olin, which means rubber. Thus, Olmec may be translated as the rubber people, or the people from the land where rubber is produced. Years of research and excavations have proven that La Venta was the center of the Olmec civilization. It was the home of the Olmec priests slash kings and their most sacred site. The four heads found at La Venta had originally been incorporated into a ceremonial platform, which was oriented on a north-south axis, as was a pyramid that was also discovered in the same area. This was the first pyramid to have been found in ancient America. La Venta also yielded evidence that allowed for the dating of the Olmec statues. At the location where the heads were found, nine samples of wood charcoal were taken from the remains of the ceremonial court. Five of these samples were believed to have been incorporated into the platform which once held the heads and they were radiocarbon dated. The dates attributed to the samples ranged from 1160 to 580 BCE, more than 3,000 years ago. To date, a total of 16 heads have been identified, two in Tres Apotes, four in La Venta, six at San Lorenzo in the state of Veracruz, and four others have been found at other sites. The heads vary in weight from 10 to 40 tons, and the largest is nine feet, four inches high. There were a number of skulls and skeletons found in graves at various Olmec sites. A careful study of them lent great support to the theory that there was a significant African presence within the Olmec population. In September 1974, at the 41st Congress of Americanists in Mexico, Dr. Andrzej Ryszynski, one of the world's leading skull experts, announced that African skulls had been found at Olmec sites in Cerro de las Miasa, Monte Alban, and Talatilco. Sinsky's evidence noted that at the pre-classic cemetery of Talatilco, 13.5% of the skeletons examined were found to be African, as compared to the 4.5% African skeletons found in the cemetery at Cerro de las Miasa, which dated from the later classic period. Graves from the pre-classic period showed Native American female skeletons buried alongside skeletons of African males, but the couples found buried at the later classic sites were found to be racially similar. This skeletal evidence indicated that an African element intermixed with the indigenous population 
at an early date the pre-classic period and had been significantly absorbed into the native group by the classic period. This skeletal information this skeletal information suggests that an African element appeared during the early years of the Olmec civilization and was genetically absorbed into the general population over the years. The skeletal evidence suggests that there probably were not more than 500 Africans in the Olmec world. A significant number of their skeletons were found buried in royal graves. The stone heads and skeletal remains prove that there was an African presence in ancient America. The question begging an answer is, from what part of Africa did these people come? Upon examination of all the evidence, the obvious answer is the Nile Valley. One of the first clues linking the Olmec heads to the Nile Valley was the helmets, which are identical in every detail to those worn by Nubian soldiers in Africa between 948 and 680 BCE. Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, noted author of They Came Before Columbus, the African presence in America, described the similarity between the Olmec and Nubian helmets. If we examine some of these helmets, we will find they are uncannily similar to leather helmets worn by the Egyptian Nubian military in the era of the Ramesses Egyptian kings and in the first millennium BC. They completely cover the head and the back of the neck and they have tie-ons attached to the crest and falling in front of the ears. The details on some of them, although almost 3,000 years old, have become a little obscured but there is one in particular now in the Dalapa Museum, which can be examined for comparative purposes. It has the circular earplug and incised decorative paralleled lines found on other colossal Nubian heads in the Egyptian seaport of Tanis. The Nubian people that Van Sertima referenced played a major role at the beginning and the ending of civilization in Kemet, and history has proven them to be the true custodians of Nile Valley traditions. The Nubian kingdom of Tasseti gave rise to the culture in the north around 3400 BCE, and the Nubian rulers of the 12th, I'm sorry, the Nubian rulers of the 25th dynasty 750 to 675 BCE brought political stability to Kemet during the last centuries of native rule. The Nubians were responsible for initiating numerous building projects such as temple construction, pyramid building, and mummification during the same time frame that Africans began appearing in the Americas 1160 to 580 BCE. Africans had been sailing ships up and down the Nile and throughout the Mediterranean Sea for countless years. The pharaoh Necho II, circa 600 BCE, directed a fleet of ships that circumnavigated the continent of Africa. In 1970, 
Thor Heyerdahl sailed an Egyptian-designed papyrus reed boat named Ra II from North Africa to the West Indies in a successful attempt to prove that the ancient Egyptians had the capacity to sail similar boats to America. Van Sertema and others have shown the existence of numerous currents and trade winds off the coast of West Africa which circulate to and from the Americas. The reality exists that Africans had the capacity to travel to the New World regardless of whether they intentionally set out to travel there. Currently, there are numerous examples supporting a Nile Valley presence in Mesoamerica, although we do not know exactly when they arrived and under what conditions. The similarities between the Olmec civilization and the Nubian slash Kemetic culture are too plentiful to be viewed as circumstantial. There existed among both groups identical traits that were shared between members of the royal and priestly class. The examples are as follows. 1. All kings in Kemet wore a double crown, which signified that the pharaoh ruled over Upper and Lower Egypt. There is an image of an Olmec dignitary at Cerro de la Piedre, who is shown wearing a double crown, and he is offering an object which has Egyptian symbols on it to a person with a distinct African appearance. 2. All kings in Kemet were portrayed with an artificial beard which was attached to their face. Most Olmec sculptures are beardless, but on the few sculptures where beards are portrayed, they appear to be attached to the face. The men who wore false beards were portrayed in a very distinguished and authoritarian poses, and the beard appeared to be an indication of high rank. 3. The royal flail of the pharaohs was a symbol of authority, and it was often shown resting on the shoulder of the king. An Olmec painting found at Axtotitlin, Axtotitlin, Axtotlin, portrays a man sitting on a throne holding a flail in a manner similar to Kemetic royalty. 4. Purple was a sacred color among the Egyptians, and it was worn only on special occasions and by people associated with royalty and the priesthood. One of the Olmec heads found at San Lorenzo was found to have been originally painted with a purple dye that was identical in intensity to the shade used in the Nile Valley. 5. The sacred boat of the king appears among both cultures and is similar in appearance, function, and name. The Indian scholar Rafik Rafik Hairazboy, in a publication entitled Ancient Americans and Chinese in America, documents a similarity between Kemetic priests holding a snake-like instrument performing the opening of the mouth ceremony on a person seated before him. We find the identical image in Mexico, and in both instances, the person performing the sacred ceremony is wearing a leopard skin garment with a tail hanging between his legs. In both cultures, priests wore leopard skin clothing. The technological similarities between the Olmecs and the Kimu Nubians are even more fascinating. 
The first American-made pyramid at La Venta was constructed along a north-south axis, which is the same orientation as the pyramids in Egypt and in Sudan. Incidentally, the world's first pyramid, the Steppe Pyramid of Saqqara, evolved from the mastabas or burial mounds which first appeared in Nubia. What is most fascinating is that the Olmecs and succeeding civilizations continued to build elaborate pyramids hundreds of years after they ceased being built in the Nile Valley. It certainly appears as though pyramid building was introduced into the Olmec culture where it continued to, to evolve over the years. One, the first pyramid in the Americas was located at a ceremonial site which contained four colossal African-looking stone heads. This pyramid had a total volume of three and a half million cubic feet and it was the first structure in America oriented to a north-south axis. The pyramids in Mexico and the Nile Valley were both used as temples and tombs. Two, the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan has a base practically identical to the Great Pyramid at Giza. It is the tallest pyramid in the Western world and it is oriented to the setting sun of the summer solstice. It was also used as an observatory and a geodetic marker. Three, the Pyramid of Kukulkan at Chichen Itza is so perfectly oriented to the spring and fall equinoxes that a marvelous phenomenon appears twice a year. At the time of the equinox, the interplay between sunlight and shadows forms triangular patterns, creating the image of a serpent slithering down the northern staircase of the pyramid. Four, the pyramid of the Niches at El Tahin is similar in design to Imhotep's steppe pyramid. Both were formed by six box-like steps. Within the El Tahin pyramid, there are 365 tiny windows which are built into each of the six divisions of the pyramid. It is believed that each window was dedicated to one day of the year. Some of the pyramids in Mesoamerica, particularly the one at La Venta, were constructed by a means totally foreign to the native population and has yet to be fully explained. The La Venta pyramid was built of stone blocks, which varied in weight from 2 to 50 tons, and were transported from quarries that were 60 to 80 miles away. One scholar, R. F. Heiser, noted a number of startling similarities between the heavy transportation techniques that were used by the people of the Nile Valley and the ancient Americans. Another strong argument in favor, in favor of a pre-Columbian African presence in the Americas has been articulated for more than 30 years by the German-born art historian and former diplomat Alexander von Wuthenau. Von Wuthenau has amassed an extraordinary collection of terracotta sculpture which vividly portrays Africoid men and women as chiefs, priests, dancers, drummers, and in a variety of other situations. Terracotta is a form of clay ranging in color from buff brown to various shades of red. The beauty of terracotta is that it allowed the artist to depict the eyes, nose, and lips of the subject with great detail. And through this medium, the artist was able to show, was also able to show 
the variances of skin color and hair texture among his subjects. Regarding the terracotta sculptures, Dr. Van Sertema comments, with respect to coloration, the clay chosen or the oxide dyes used to evoke the blackness or dark brownness of the skin is particularly striking because they are reserved for the types with the non-native noses, lips, hair textures, etc. These were deliberate choices of artists dealing with human models. Unlike the Olmec heads, of which 16 have been discovered, there are thousands of African images in terracotta, which were made between 1500 BCE and 1500 ACE. Von Wuthenau's uh, most recent publication is entitled Unexplained Faces in Ancient America, and despite criticism of his research by some scholars and associates, he has been given constant support by members of the Mexican government, including former President Portillo. Von Wuthenau recently expressed his reasoning for continuing his research. After 35 years of intense study concerning the human images forged by pre-Columbian artists, I dare to put these artists on this on the historical witness stand. In these times of racial unrest, a cool evaluation of historical truth and the re-acknowledgement of ethnic roots behind and below the ancient population of the Americas should have a sobering and healing effect on many a confused mind. Many healthcare practitioners believe that overcoming denial is the first step toward healing a confused mind. There must exist within the world a yet unnamed disorder which impairs vision and allows people to actually believe that African-looking images are not what they appear to be. This disease has already reached epidemic proportions among researchers of Nile Valley history and it is now affecting researchers of Mesoamerican history. For example, Michael Cole, Harvard educated and chairman of the Department of Anthropology at Yale. He is recognized as America's leading historian on Mexico and says that the Olmec heads have broad noses and thick lips because the tools used to cut them were too blunt to make sharper noses and thinner lips. Cole reasons that this was done because the sculptors did not want to create protruding or thin facial features that might break off. What logic did Cole use to justify this line of reasoning? He simply stated, I hope nobody a thousand years from now thinks that people had two noses and three eyes in our time just because Picasso painted people that way. Terracotta sculptures of African images found in pre-Columbian America are displayed in the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City and in the Diego Rivera Museum. They can also be found in the private collections of Josue Sainz and Alexander von Wuthenau. When this same Michael Coe, one of America's foremost archaeologists, was asked if he knew of these clay sculptures that corroborate the ethnicity of the Olmec heads, he admitted that he had never heard of them. One of the most extensive collections of Olmec heads can be found in the Mexican city of Jalapa 
at the Jalapa Museum of Anthropology. Upon entering the museum, one can see overhead a declaration carved in stone, which attests to the significant contributions of the Olmec people. It reads, Attention Mexicans, this is the root of your history, its cradle and its altar. Listen to the most silent voices of the most ancient culture in Mexico, the mother of the civilization of our continent. The Olmecs converted rain into harvest, the sun into a calendar, stone into sculpture, cotton into cloth, pilgrimage into commerce, mountains into thrones, jaguars into religion, and men into God.